You're tuning in to the Wild, Weird, and Sometimes Normal podcast. If you have a story or a guest recommendation that you think others need to hear, email me at wildweirdandsometimesnormal at gmail.com. Let's get this started. Alex and Brett, kick it! On this episode, I'm joined by Eric and CJ from Collectus Obscurium. Eric and CJ are paranormal investigators. We discuss some of their favorite cases, most haunted places they've been, the equipment they use, and what to do if you think your house has a paranormal phenomenon. We also cover if they believe in UFOs and other weird things. Eric is a practicing occultist and gave some insight into that lifestyle. We only touched on it for a bit because Eric is going to come back for a show focused on the occult. Check the show notes for links to their socials, and be sure to let them know you heard them on Wild and Weird. I also want to shout out my new advertising partner, Pure Pet Wellness. Find all of your pet's CBD needs at purepetwellness.com. Use promo code Wild and Weird at checkout. Also, a big thank you to the 20 countries that have streamed the show. I truly appreciate your support. 175 more, and I have complete world domination. Tell your friends to listen. Lastly, big ups to listeners suggesting guests. Alicia put me in touch with Eric and CJ, and I just recorded a pod that will be out in a few weeks from another listener suggestion. Hit me up if you know someone who would be a great guest. Enjoy the show. Are you looking for CBD for your pet? My friends at Pure Pet Wellness have what you need. They use the highest quality ingredients. While other companies may use synthetic oils in their CBD, Pure Pet Wellness uses organic ingredients, organically grown hemp, organic coconut oil, organic shea butter, organic beeswax, and that's just to name a few. A family-owned and operated company that also offers fast shipping. Go to purepetwellness.com for all your pet's CBD needs and use the discount code WILD and WEIRD at checkout. That's WILD, A-N-D, WEIRD. Treat your animal right. Go to purepetwellness.com. Are you looking to buy a home in New Jersey? Escape the city and move to the suburbs? Finally purchase that vacation home on the lake or down the shore? Maybe you're one of the lucky ones who are retiring and moving out of state. If so, let me help you. Keller Williams and the Real Estate Professional Group have what you need to make your goals come true. Reach out and have a conversation with someone who will put you first. Contact Brian McCoach at 856-321-1212 or email brianmccoach at kw.com. Welcome to another episode of Wild, Weird, and Sometimes Normal. I'm your host, Brian. And on this episode, I'm joined by Eric and CJ of Collectus Obscurium, and they are paranormal researchers. Welcome, guys. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Hey, I really appreciate it. So it turns out that CJ and I have a common friend. So shout out to Alicia, big fan out there. She's been giving a lot of good feedback, so I appreciate it. And thanks for setting this up. So guys, Collectus Obscurium, what's it about and how did you get started? CJ and I have been investigating the paranormal together going back 10 years. And he founded, co-founded an organization that uh, I eventually joined. And he had stepped away from the organization after a while. And I took it over. 
the group was beyond repair. I couldn't, I couldn't make it work. And after some time being away from it myself, I started to contemplate coming back to investigating the paranormal. I reached out to him about a year ago and told him what my ideas were. And he was on board with that. And we've been starting up ever since then. It's been a slow start, but we're happy with our progress. Was that a dig at CJ that was beyond repair? Are we going to have some Mari <laughs> Povich coming out here? He left the group before it went downhill. Okay. Yeah. Him I, leaving I kinda, is what kinda, caused kinda, it to go downhill. <laughs> I, I believe so. Yes. He had some stuff in his personal life he had to take care of and uh, he had to step away from it. And when I inherited the group, it had already been damaged beyond repair. I'm quite a magnet. You know, I hold it all together. Start. <laughs> That's complete sarcasm. But uh, yeah, so it was uh, it was definitely an interesting time. And it was I mean, we did a lot of stuff. You know, that group did a lot. It was kind of like the height of the paranormal, the whole paranormal influx there during their or mid early 2000s. And uh, yeah, it was it was uh, it was a wild ride for for a while. What started your interest in ghosts and the paranormal? For me, honestly, Ghostbusters. Great. Movie. And then, yeah, big fan of Ghostbusters. And then like once I saw Ghost Hunters doing it, I was like, well, if these plumbers can do it, geez, I, I could do it. So. I was like, all right, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a shot. They're taking like Mario Brothers and Ghostbusters and mixing it together, and like we can create a show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. What about you, Eric? I got interested in the paranormal when I was a when I was a child. This the supernatural, the paranormal, the occult, all of that stuff always really interested me. I'd never realized that paranormal was an investig like paranormal investigations was something you could do until I saw Poltergeist when I was a kid. And I remember telling my mother, you know, I, I want to do that. And uh, so my mom's like, well, you're gonna have to go to college to be a uh, parapsychologist. And of course, that doesn't, that's not true. <laughs> so uh, that's what got me interested in it, just like a lifelong interest in the strange and unusual. And uh, I still hold those interests to this day. I love that your mom is watching Poltergeist with you. And she's like, yeah, great career choice. You should just go, yeah, just go into the light. Don't worry about it. You're fine. I put E.T. on for my kids. And then we have to like grab the remote real quick as E.T.'s coding and having a heart attack. We're like, oh my God, when, when did the movie get so terrible? It's supposed to be fun and friendly and Reese's Pieces. And then, you know, we watched some of the other movies and it's like, oh, my parents didn't care that I was watching Predator at seven years old or Poltergeist <laughs> or anything. It was just normal. It was the 80s. It was great. Yeah, different time. So you started in the early to mid 2000s, CJ, and like, what's the first step in, in doing that? Are you just talking to people and, and asking, are they hearing things at night or you go into like Eastern State Penitentiary? So for us, it was like, we start out just going to different places. Like there was a, an abandoned building and like we went to, down to Barnegat Light with a couple of friends, you know, because that's supposedly haunted looking back on it, outdoor investigations are really tough. So do being, doing that first, it's easy, but it was, it was definitely interesting. And then, you know, I reached out, I don't remember how, but the other co-founder of our form, our former group, we met up and he just so happened to know somebody who's said their house was having activity and it kind of just snowballed from there. We went and did that investigation. And then from word of mouth, we got another and then another and then another and it 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 really went rather quick and then we were just 
getting calls probably once a month to come investigate private residences and we would reach out to different places that you know we'd see in weird new jersey and and try to investigate there and it was a lot different back then to get investigations it was a little little harder but yet a little easier at the same time what type of equipment would you bring to document the case or to investigate? Would you try to resolve these or or just confirm with the people that, yeah, your, your place is haunted? So the one thing with our group is that I always wanted to be, I always wanted to try to solve what was going on, whether it could be like a plumbing issue or, or a drafty window. I always wanted to find a reasonable explanation for the experiences that everybody was, that clients were having. And so, you know, when we first started out, it was very basic, you know, pen, paper, really cheap audio recorder. And back then it didn't even have a USB port on it. So reviewing it and getting it on a computer to edit it was just a nightmare. And it was pretty much just the basics, uh, EMF detector. And and that was really it. And then, you know, with a, a level head, just go into the investigation. And if you'd hear a noise, you know, you hear a bump. You would just try to work those things out and try to see what it was. Some cases, it turned out it was, you know, a noisy neighbor or or sound travel. And then there's other cases where you there's not really a good explanation for it. It just kind of happens. I agree with that. I think you have to enter every investigation as a skeptic first. Try to explain away a lot of what's going on, because even in the most paranormally active locations, not every creak, crack, and bump is paranormal. So you always have to be honest with yourself and say, is this really paranormal? And after you exhaust all of the logical explanations that you can possibly go through, then you start looking at potentially it being paranormal. So it's almost better to go onto the scene doubting, you know, maybe not doubting the people, but just like, there's no way. I need to check everything off. I need this place is not haunted until it's absolutely in your face that, that it could right. be something. Are yeah, you researching exactly. the yeah. property or the grounds or anything before you go or after? We do a complete workup of every location. So we do our best to research the history of a location, the grounds, any strange occurrences that take place outside as well as inside. The way we present it is that we present the client with everything that we find, things that we've debunked and things that we weren't able to explain and even things that we're comfortable calling paranormal because we'll present evidence that might be paranormal, but we weren't able to confirm that. We let the client then decide how they feel about it. What are examples of paranormals? I mean, a, a ghost or something, but what else could it, are we talking about? Well, paranormal phenomena can be caused by a large cross-section of energetic anomalies. It can be caused by, potentially caused by the living themselves. A large portion of poltergeist cases have been found to be linked to the living, usually some sort of repressed emotions. It's common in prepubescent females, especially. That right there is an example of what else it can be other than a deceased human. So I had Paul Rowland on, and he's an author and musician, and he's written several books on ghosts. And he brought up the like teen girls 
and they would have this frenzy. And this is common knowledge in 1800s and early 1900s. I had never heard of this. And I was at first, I was like, it's really sexist. You can't say this. Like, this isn't happening. And then I heard another podcast, not my own, that I was doing. And someone else brought that up too. I was like, oh, wow. Like, I've just completely, this has just gone over my head. I've, I've never even known this. So this is just like pent up energy of some sort. And it's being expressed through them interacting with their current world reality and coming out in a different way than moving your iPhone with your hand and everybody's seeing it? Sure. I mean, emotions are a strong thing. And if they're pent up or if they're not expressed properly, like a lot of young people have trouble doing, if there's some sort of abuse going on and they're intentionally hiding it, things like that find their way out. They start to express themselves in the externally from the person. Colin Wilson actually wrote a good book on poltergeists where he talks about the phenomena of, of the living causing poltergeist activity. And what would an example of a living person causing poltergeist activity, just in general, would that be? Well, poltergeist activity is usually linked to objects being moved. Uh, stacking is a huge is a huge thing about poltergeist, right? The kid, you know, you walk into the kitchen and the chairs are on the table or the dishes are all stacked up or things just aren't where you left them. I try to avoid some vague examples like that because people are, you know, forgetful. <laughs> but um, there's certain things that you could say, yeah, that's that's classic poltergeist banging, tapping, uh, you know, noisy ghost. That's poltergeist. And so that's a good example. Objects moving and sounds. CJ, during any of your investigations, have you witnessed the poltergeist activity happening or been in one room with your clients? Or I mean, maybe the clients aren't even there for this. And you go back into another room and then there's a stacking or there's obvious poltergeist activity had happened? No, actually, I've had clients contact us because they've had experiences. But when we would go out and investigate, those experiences wouldn't happen. I've had quite a few clients that have said they've had all sorts of like poltergeist-ish activities, and the investigations really turned up nothing. What about you, Eric? Well, to add to what CJ said is when we have clients that are claiming to have these things happening in their home, I like to remind people that if they have three or four occurrences a month, when you're living amongst it, that's a lot. When you have a paranormal investigator come in, the odds of being at the right place at the right time with the right instruments to record it, the odds are against that being successful. So although these clients aren't likely lying about it, uh, they might be mistaken as to what is, what's going on, but it's sometimes hard to record things like that. I have experienced it at Pennhurst Asylum. We've had an object thrown down the hall at us, a little toy car to be exact. and. It happened in front of a room full of skeptics, which was really one of my favorite things that happened because they really had to reassess what they believed and what was real and what was not real. But I never said that a ghost did it because maybe someone standing there in that room caused that to happen through some unknown way. Now, that's interesting with the, I mean, I don't want to say living, it was just regular people causing the power. So even if something was to happen, it's like, oh, that was a ghost. Like, well, no, it could be, you know, are you having a bad day? Like, how do you feel? Do you have pent up energy? 
everybody should go talk to a psychologist before they go on this, you know, air out your grievances. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm not yeah. saying that's what happened, but it, no, it, could, it could certainly be what happened. We just don't know. The object came down the hallway, was tossed towards us. We heard it hit the floor in front of us. So that's what we know happened. What caused that? We're not going to make any claims of that. We know it wasn't a person picking it up and tossing at us, not the living anyway. Do you have any recording equipment that you leave overnight or for an extended period of time and you come back and collect? That's referred to as a passive investigation. Um, we don't have any clients that currently allow us to do that, but that's certainly a valid technique. And we, we've done that before. I mean, not like fully overnight, but we'll leave recorders in for a few hours. Like we used to do that at Penhurst quite a bit back in the day when we really investigated there a lot. We would do it for certain investigations, especially in bigger buildings where you don't have a lot of, you know, movement. You don't have a lot of ambient noise, teams coming in and out and stuff. And we have gotten quite a few EVPs and different disembodied voices, and it has proven successful. What were the voices saying? Pretty much anything. I, I mean, Penhurst was one of those places, just using Penhurst as a reference, because we've had so much activity there. You would get, I mean, I got an EVP telling me to F off, which was pretty interesting. And it was pretty clear. And there was like three of us in one building and it wasn't anybody we were with. So that was pretty interesting. Eric probably remembers some of the some of the ones we've caught. Direct responses to asking like, what's your age? If you're a boy or a girl, direct response. Penhurst is an old hospital? Yeah, it was, uh, it was an old state school and then turned psychiatric hospital. And now it's just the paranormal hotspot, tourist attraction kind of thing. All of those, anything old is just creepy, but like anything before there were real laws in place, like there were some major messed up things that went oh, on. Yeah. And then even the one Kennedy, JFK's sister, they gave her a lobotomy because she was like too teenagerish. Like she was going around and flirting with boys and they're like, nope, she's insane. Go go, give her a lobotomy. So perfectly healthy person who wanted to go out and hang out with her friends and not sit in a mansion in Massachusetts and ah, just chop off half her brain. Her fine. And yep. they did it. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Medical has medical science has come a long way. That's uh, that's for sure. It was definitely very dark in, in terms you'd of be sanitary. Hard, you'd be hard pressed to find an abandoned asylum or prison that isn't paranormally active to some extent. Those people are just treated horribly. The conditions were terrible. Uh, they were misunderstood. The science was not there to treat them properly. It was It's just a, a horrible place. Really sad. They were making up the science as they were going at that time. That That's crazy. During my nine to five job, I had to go to Ancora Psych Hospital and I talked with their IT person. And then I got a tour of the whole campus. And there are buildings that are you know, completely dilapidated, yet they'll have a server in there. So I'm going through there and like half the building is burned out on the inside. And he was saying that that place was haunted. And then there's underground tunnels that connect each building. And there's every activity. asylum has them. Yeah. Yep. But these people, like there's regular workers walking in these, like, no, you know what? Just not working here. No, thanks. <laughs> I don't need anything piggybacking off of me and going home underground tunnels. I, I don't need to go through them unless this is like Disney and they're polished and they're nice. And they're, you know, like I'm going to see <laughs> Mickey Mouse under there. No, thanks. Penhurst has a uh, system of tunnels and they have like sub tunnels underneath those tunnels that, that are, uh, they're a labyrinth. You could get lost down there so easily. They connect so many buildings over so, so many acres of land. It's really quite impressive. 
Yeah, the first time we went in there, I was dropping glow sticks like every five feet in the tunnels just so we could find our way back. It was pretty, pretty interesting. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't want to go down there and get lost or, you know, I'm sure there's <laughs> just kids down there playing and just messing with people knowing they go down there to look for things. Yeah. You know, probably be pretty fun if you're the one messing with people. But if you're down there investigating or trying to take things seriously, it could turn into Resident Evil real quick down there. We never experienced anybody trying to give us a hard time or mess with us at Penhurst. They have a security force there and they have security systems on the buildings themselves. So it's hard to do that to us, but I'm sure there's plenty of places where that does happen. So is Penhurst one of the most active places you've been to? Without a doubt. Yeah, it was pretty much every single time we went. And Eric and I used to go quite often. Every single time you either got multiple EVPs, multiple experiences, that place was pretty active. And we've done we've done quite a few uh, interesting places, but that place never never let us down. It seems a place where people may have been treated terribly or, you know, an institution, state run, government run, little oversight when you're the head honcho in charge, you know, probably a good place to go look. Documented though, was it was not properly handled. Yeah. So that would be a good place to investigate, you know, for the unfortunate things that happened there. And now, so New Jersey, you know, there's tons of Revolutionary War, you know, there were Native Americans all through this land. Do you see things like that more active? Yeah, um, yeah, kind of. Like we had a we had a investigation at a house in Neptune in the Shark River Hills section of Neptune, which has a very very colorful history if you look back on it. And the house wasn't real old, but some of the EVPs we caught, which were kind of edgy for what they were, seemed like they were from before the the community was built there. Like I said, it's got a pretty interesting history between the military having a, a outpost there for electronics and different communities that have grown up through that section over time. It's pretty fascinating how that seemed to affect what we gathered. You guys go in the PA at all, or is this all New Jersey? We'll go to PA. We'll go to New York, New Jersey, anywhere where we can drive. We, we would travel for investigations, too. You don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Is this is this like a weekend gig? Is this is this a career? No, we do not get paid for this. Tips are encouraged. Um, well, we, <laughs> we don't accept money because then you start to call into question the results and and your motives for finding things or not finding things based on what the client is after. We're currently working with a client that seems to very much want there to be paranormal activity there so she can prosper from it. We're not so sure that there is yet, but you know that's that's the kind of thing that if you start taking money, people start to question, well, how legitimate are their findings? It's a shame that people... So I, I was talking to uh, someone else talking about UFOs, and a lot of UFO researchers, they will get looked down on because they start making a career and a living, Then, but then you have to keep producing more outlandish or crazy, or you didn't want to hear a basic story of I saw a light in the sky. Now you have to have like 10 aliens coming down and you're playing poker with them. But people should be allowed to make a living if they can and have it not frowned upon. There's people that do make livings. I mean, there's, you can't turn on the TV without seeing paranormal TV shows. There's people that make livings doing it. That's just not us. I would love to be able to do that, but it's not in the cards. Right. Not yet. Don't count it out. So since you brought up TV and I was going to thread this in later, though, what do you think of the TV investigations, TV shows, ghost hunters and things like that? They're really 
important for legitimizing the field. People seem to accept that it can be successful to document paranormal activity. I kind of liken paranormal TV shows with learning about the judicial system by watching Judge Judy. You kind of get some of the terminology. You kind of see a little bit of what goes on. But in the end, it's, it's a reality TV show. And you have to take into account that they're going to draw conclusions that typical paranormal investigators might not be comfortable doing. They are going to try to shoehorn the evidence into the history or the story of the location to try to make a neat little package out of it. I'm not saying they're lying because uh, I don't I don't know these people, but it seems as though TV show comes first. Of course, you know, that's what they're there for. And legitimate paranormal investigation is a close second. It's hard to have an episode two, three, a season three, four, five. If after every episode, you're like, well, and we don't know what it is, but tune in next week. Here we are. But, you know, as <laughs> you talk about oh, there's... Island at that point. <laughs> right. But you're like, oh, there's a, a big fire here 50 years ago. And this person we're talking to, we hear fire. And then you're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Good for TV. Good for people who are unsure to maybe show them a path to believing or understanding, but take everything they find with a grain of salt because you're not there anyway to confirm. And it, it was really good for to see the like the paranormal community as a whole. Um, it was really good for because people didn't really know that you could do that, you know. And it's I mean it's a good thing and a bad thing as anything as something grows you get a lot of good out of it and then you get some bad out of it because it's just grown so much but these tv shows really help to grow that community so now equipment is getting you know a lot more people are trying to make different equipment and so the science is evolving because it it gained popularity so that's kind of a, a neat little thing that kind of happened for somebody who wants to go and learn in their house or mess around and they think they have something what is like the first type of equipment? What's the starter equipment that they could get? I would say uh, something to detect uh, electromagnetic fields, such as like a K2 meter or a Mel meter, something to record audio on. So you can do electric voice phenomenon sessions and uh, a flashlight. I mean, that's what I, you can't imagine how many people show up to a paranormal investigation without a flashlight. And so that's the first thing you should get, but an audio recorder, a digital audio recorder and something to detect electromagnetic fields is always a good place to start. It's not real expensive and get your foot in the door that way. Those people without a flashlight are definitely getting lost in the Penhurst tunnels. <laughs> We're not going to get them that you're stuck down there. Get out on your own. Yeah. You, yep. you made, you, yeah, you made the bed. You lie in it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Do you guys record any of, of your experiences, your episodes, your cases? We document everything. With videos. I'm sorry. Do you record them with video? We do. Yes. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Do you upload yeah, these try. to YouTube? Are you trying to do your own show or anything with us? We haven't had any plans of doing any kind of YouTube channel yet. It might be in the future for us. We're still getting our feet wet with uh, the new group, finding cases and documenting them properly. Our main concern is to provide really good evidence and case files to the client. Once we see that they're happy with what they're getting from us, then we can kind of compose that into something more digestible to the public. That makes sense. No, that's good. Your group, how many people are in your group? 
there's about it fluctuates anywhere between six and 12. And is everybody going on the same case or you're breaking up whoever's available at that no, time? Or It's always CJ, myself, and my wife were the three people that really created the organization. And then a couple of other people will come along with us. People that might not have a lot of experience, they can get some training in that way. And we have we tend to always have the core three of us, and then we try to invite some others as their schedules permit. And that's good to train, you know, you have to train the future. How many cases would you say you get a month, a year? That there's no number on that. That fluctuates. We just, uh, we just had a really busy period where we had uh, four and two months. Anything more than that, you're going to start to compromise how well you're going over your evidence and your data that you collect. Because you got to remember if you're running two to three cameras for six hours, you're looking at all that footage multiple times. If you're running a couple of audio recorders for two to three hours, you're listening to all that multiple times. So that's a lot of evidence review for people that have day jobs. You know, you can only devote so much of your time to it. You don't want to spread yourself too thin. What's your criteria for accepting a case? We accept pretty much any case that uh, people seem to believe that there's something paranormal going on. Uh, We wouldn't turn anybody down. If we're if we're busy with established cases, then of course they're going to come first. If there's something really terrible happening to someone, they'll would get prioritized as well. But if anyone just says they have mild activity, we're more than happy to come out and take a look at it. Do you find that as the technology is getting better and some of these microphones and cameras have built-in filters and you know smoothing audio, do you think that compromises not your ability to do the investigation, but are you know are you going to miss out on distorted voices or anything because the the software is going to clean that up automatically? A lot of what we use is um, specific to paranormal investigation. CJ actually has a recorder that we still use that's pretty old because it is well known within the paranormal community that it works really well, and he still has it. He still uses it at every investigation. But a lot of this stuff is proprietary to the paranormal. We use it because it's made for it. The stuff that's not exactly made for the paranormal tends to have enough control to where you can adjust sensitivities and things like that on it that you're not getting, you're not dropping things that you want to get. So we talked about pent up emotions and feelings and that living regular people can cause paranormal activity. Do you believe in ghosts? Yes, but that comes with a kind of a lengthy explanation, uh, but I, I won't bore you with that now. But there's fragments of consciousness that I believe that can linger and interact with the physical realm and the people on it. And uh, anyone that knows the paranormal knows that there's intelligent hauntings and there's residual hauntings. And these things are documented. We we've experienced them. You can't do this work for very long without saying, I can't explain all of this. This is this, there's something going on here and all the skeptics in the world aren't going to talk me out of it. That doesn't mean that we lie to ourselves. You know, we have to take everything with a grain of salt until we run through the process. But I would say, yes, that paranormal can come from deceased humans. That is entirely possible. So you mentioned consciousness. Do you think this could be related? This could be like the greater consciousness of the universe and something being left over, a residual effect of some sort? 
Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of different theories that talk about that, but the continuity of existence or the continuing of consciousness after death isn't anything new. I mean, humans have been tackling that forever. They've always thought about that. And I think that that does have a tie to it. There's some theories out there that say, well, why are so many ghosts angry or sad or unhappy? And it's, they say, perhaps it's because that's the part that's left behind. Perhaps a person has moved on and it's only the earthly things, this jealousy, this bitterness, this anger, whatever the case might be, that's earthbound. And that's what continues to linger here while the person hopefully has moved on to a better place. CJ, do you have any thoughts on what ghosts could be or are you on the same page as all this? Yeah, I'm on the same page as Eric with just about most of everything. That's one good thing. We we do differ with certain beliefs. Here and there, not not so much different, but we just have a different take on it. Yeah, for the most part, that's pretty much the same feelings I get with or that I have as far as ghosts and spirits. We like- were uh, being considered for a a pilot for a TV show, and we didn't get it because everybody got along too well. <laughs> yeah. You have to bring up how CJ was kicked out of the group originally, and that you took over. This is this is your angle here, and then you brought him back. This is the jealousy. Yeah, and CJ's fighting, fighting for control of the whole thing again. He wants to get, you know, like like a Dr. Evil thing or something. I'll help you guys out. Don't worry. After this, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> it'll be in the book. Uh, it'll be in the book. Uh, Eric, I like what you said, though, about the anger of a person being left behind. And that is just a piece of them that was left behind and they moved on. Because if you're following this stuff and you, know, you hear stories about all different things. So near-death experience or people who said that they have died and went to the other side and they talk about all loving and peace and not having this and and all of their earthly concerns were just gone instantly and then to have an angry ghost is that person trapped here and that gets you know you start thinking about it, like that could be really sad that somebody is trapped here for 200 years and we have no idea you know time's a construct that we have to make the trains run on time and people go to work and all stuff like that and in the afterlife 100 years could be a blink of an eye that we have here hundred years could be a million years to them. Like, yeah, you know, we have no idea about any of this stuff. But it would be very sad that a Revolutionary War soldier is still stuck in the woods, angry, and that they're not living the other side of their life. But I like that you said that that's just an earthly feeling, jealousy, hate, emotion like that, and that they can shed that here, and then hopefully they're okay on the other side. I am a big believer that the consciousness is not one thing. A person is not body and soul, but multifaceted. So if there's something here, that doesn't mean that every aspect of that person is here. It just means that some small portion, some small expression of what they were or how they lived is continuing in some way here. Sometimes it's conscious. Sometimes the deceased is aware of it. And sometimes it's just a recording over and over again. You know, someone leaves you a voicemail and you listen to it. The person was alive. They were conscious that they were leaving it. But when you choose to listen to it or when you experience it, that person isn't there. They're not aware that you're listening to it. They're not aware that you're playing it again. That's the angle that I tend to lean towards, that people are more than just these two compartmentalized body and soul, and that's it. I think there's more to it than that. You know, There were stories that Houdini said that when he died, he would come back. And if he was able to, he would contact his wife. Whitley Strieber wrote the book Communion, and he started getting into more paranormal. He is He's still alive now. He gets into it. His wife passed away. And I think there, as she was, I think she was sick, 
And as she was getting sick and more sick, they were working on a plan to communicate in the afterlife. Do you think there's any chance that somebody could intentionally try to come back and communicate, or this is all luck of the draw or just leaving behind, you know, earthly feelings? I actually wrote an entire essay on why people don't communicate when they're supposed to, or when you would expect them to, or when they agreed to. And there's a lot of different things that can go into that. Paranormal activity, we just don't know. We don't know why it happens, and we don't know why it happens at the places it does happen. It could be environmental. It could just be certain individuals have that happen, and some don't. We don't really know. But I think it's important to remember that, like you said, when when someone passes on, we don't know how they experience time. We might be waiting for them for 50 years to reach out to us, but to their consciousness, they just died a second ago. Someone that has come close to dying will tell you that time compressed and got very slow. And there's a person, Anthony Peek, who wrote books about the consciousness replaying the entire life moment by moment before you die, but mentally you're unaware of it. So for example, maybe you've already had this interview before. Maybe you've already talked to me before, and this is a replay of something that's happened to you because you're about to die the compression of time makes it seem like this is all happening in the regular linear expansion of time. But we don't know how the consciousness experiences time. It's very subjective. So maybe that has something to do with it. Maybe people pass away and people here are waiting for them, but they just don't comprehend time like we do. How do you think I'm going to go to sleep tonight thinking now that I'm in the middle of my life review and that any minute it could be over? Well, don't worry too much because at the end of this life, there's a, you know, that theory continues that it compresses and gets slower and you do it again and you do it again. Eventually, yes, that original body does die according to that theory, but it's only after you kind of like play the perfect game. He splits the consciousness into two parts, the daemonic, not demonic, daemonic self that is acutely aware that you've already lived and then the current awareness. So if you are reliving your life right now, your awareness is just telling you, no, this is just regular life going by. But then you have those moments of deja vu or like, hey, you're going to get into an accident and bang, you get into an accident. You're like, that's weird. I knew that was going to happen. Why did I know that? According to that theory, it's not particularly my theory, but according to that theory, it's because it's already happened. There's a part of you that's aware that you're reliving that. And it happens over and over again until you make these minute changes that you live the perfect life or, or what's perfect for you. And eventually that body does die and all that does end. But from a paranormal perspective, this creates a interesting thing, right? So if you're reliving your life right now, you're a ghost, you're a ghost. So something I always ask during EVP sessions that a lot of people don't ask is I always ask, how do you perceive us? Are we like ghosts to you? Do you hear us? Do you see us? Because we don't know how these things can overlap. We don't know how these like little compressions of time and dimension. We don't know if maybe spirit activity is that overlapping with other people's experience of time. One, I, I like both of that. I need to read the book that you're talking about. Just fascinating. And it's going to keep me thinking for a while. And two, what was the answer? So you've asked... 
ghostly figure, the distorted voice? You've asked them this question. What was the answer? I have. I haven't gotten an answer. EVP ahead, yeah. replies tend to be very simple. Hmm. Yes, no, you know, numbers. So like, am, am I a ghost? Do you see me? Things like that. They they need to work on writing. If they could just give you a whole essay, it'd be a lot better. That would be nice. <laughs> yeah. So what is the best or craziest thing you've ever seen? For me, it was that experience at Pennhurst where we had the toy car thrown at us. Not because it was the biggest or most wild thing that's happened, but since it happened in a room full of skeptics, I would consider that to be really relevant because anytime a skeptic sees something and says, I can't explain that, I have to go and rethink how I live my life, what I believe. I have to restructure my opinion about consciousness. To me, that's very significant. And I think that's probably my favorite phenomenon that I got to experience. That's great. That's a good one. CJ? So my favorite experience was actually at a private residence. And it was very early on, the, our former group. I had actually set up a couple noise and light up motion sensors down this L-shaped hallway. And I went into this bedroom to do an EVP session. And it was hardwood. And then it was tile in the bedroom with like a little island and a, like a TV area. And so I see the light, the one motion sensor turn on down the hallway and then the next one and then the alarm motion sensor goes off just then it crosses the threshold into the bedroom and i could hear and feel the footsteps on the hardwood floor walk all the way around the hardwood floor and stop right next to me that was probably one of the coolest moments yeah feeling the hardwood that had to be crazy yeah it was really really crazy that was it was just such a such a surreal moment just feeling the footsteps on the wood and then just stopping right next to me. It's pretty interesting. So when I was, I don't know, probably 10, 11 years old or so, we would go up to my aunt's house and she was either in Croydon or Ben Salem. And so my whole family would go up there and spend a weekend. She had a pool and we would barbecue and hang out and do all this stuff. So they had a new construction house in development. And there's times, you know, we had waken up. And we are in the dining room having breakfast. Everybody in the entire house is in the dining room having breakfast. And you would hear footsteps on the stairs, get to the bottom, and you'd expect to turn around and see somebody, and everybody would turn around, and nobody's there. And everybody heard it. And this would happen quite often. And then the other one that happened you know, not as often, the steps happened so often. It's such a weird feeling of hearing steps and turn around. And I expect to see my aunt or my uncle. And it's like, oh no, you're in front of me. And oh, my mom and dad are in front of me too. And really weird. But I had woken up before it was around six in the morning and I heard vacuuming downstairs and then come down for breakfast at seven or eight or whatever. And I was like, oh, aunt so-and-so and uncle so-and-so, why why were you vacuuming at six o'clock in the morning? Oh no, no, it was just a ghost. He does that. We hear it. But no <laughs> vacuum tracks, no so the least he could have done was like really vacuum, but you would hear the noise. And apparently for them, they would hear that often too. Yeah. They're really weird. A footsteps downstairs is a really common occurrence because it can take place from an intelligent haunting and residual as well. Like footsteps, especially on stairs, very, very common. A lot of people experience that. We've had quite a few experiences. It's funny you mentioned the vacuum because we've had quite a few experiences where we would hear like objects we were in Penhurst again, and we caught what sounded like a heart monitor, like the beeping of a heart monitor. There's no electricity in these buildings. We've caught somebody we were with caught a toilet flushing. 
You know, there's no running water. Why is it? Why do we have a toilet flushing? You know, so it's it's kind of funny that you had the the vacuum experience. It's really really interesting. I love all of this stuff, but when it comes down to it, if I was to start experiencing it regularly, like the footsteps, that's fine. It would get old after a while. Like, buddy, yes, yes, stop the footsteps, man. Like, <laughs> walk outside and take a walk around the neighborhood, come back. Like, that's fine. But I was telling, I think author Michael Bryan was on here, and he did paranormal thing. And we first moved into the house that I'm in now. We were staying somewhere for a couple of weeks in between our old house selling and this house selling. And I, we had the floors done because, you know, I, I don't know where you guys live or whatever, but if you ever have carpet and you're upstairs and you put all your bedroom furniture in and you're like, oh, next year, next month, whenever we're going to rip up the carpet and do the hardwood, you never do it. Like you have to do it immediately. There's nowhere to put all this furniture. So we closed in the house. I had floor guys in immediately and they're ripping all upstairs the and sanding and doing all this stuff. And I'm coming at night, 11 p.m., 12 o'clock at night to come sweep up and clean. And then I would leave. And the one night, and it, it, so it's kind of creepy here. There's no lights. I'm I'm moving. You know, I have this pole lamp next to me right here, and I'm moving like that pole lamp from room to room and plugging it in in a new place. And there's no curtains or anything. Kind of creepy, just in general, just creepy. And the one night, the air compressor upstairs, I guess, overfilled or whatever, and shot off and started making all this noise. I jumped so high, and this this is normal. Like you know, like not this normal should go off, but this is a you know. This is an easy solution here. You guys, but it's not even haunted. It's an air compressor. Come on, if I'm hearing toilets flushing, if I'm if I'm hearing, yeah. you know, uh, electricity, you know, heart monitors, and there's not there. I think it's time to go. And if it's residual, then you really don't have anything to worry about. In most cases, you don't have anything to worry about anyway. Uh, don't, don't let the people on TV tell you like you know every every episode of one show. They're just like it's very dangerous. This is a very dangerous situation. It's very dangerous. We could be in a lot of peril here and. It's like, okay, there might be some negativity in places, but what really happens to people, um, it depends on how emotionally fragile you are. I think a person's psyche has a lot to do with what happens to them. I think that uh, people have to study perception. Why is it that certain people have more paranormal experiences than others everywhere they go? Are they just crazy or is there something about them that allows them to perceive these things a little better than other people? I am not sensitive at all. Every time we go on a paranormal investigation, if there's somebody in their group, oh, it feels heavy in here. Oh, it feels this in here. I'm just like, I don't feel anything. Like that's why I rely on my instruments and you know different devices to detect activity and to document that activity because I just don't feel it. So maybe that's why I'm not really worried about something affecting me in some negative way just because i'm just that dense like they just can't get in well i think that's good that you have people on the team who can feel things and then you're using your equipment and cj i just want to i just want to say that i made a note that i think eric called me emotionally fragile i'm not too sure i'm not going to ask him to clarify <laughs> that but he may have called me emotionally fragile <laughs> he, he is yeah. insensitive <laughs> yes, that's that's true yeah i've been accused of that <laughs> Do you just investigate the paranormal? Or are you interested in in other out there things? I personally don't really investigate things like UFO phenomenon or uh, cryptozoology or anything like that. I'm very much interested in like mysticism and related fields to that. Um, that I definitely research on and experiment with quite a bit. I'd love to have a separate conversation on that and and go into depth on that one. Anytime. Perfect.
CJ, what about you? Do you have any interest in, oh, so Eric, you don't, investigations you don't do, somebody only has time for so much. Do you have any interest in it or you just, you're just focused on paranormal and other stuff? I, I think there's people out there doing good work in those other fields. It's not my specialty. Again, it's, again, it comes down to time, right? There's yeah. only, do you like it? A, I guess is my question. Do you like that stuff? I, I can appreciate it. I definitely love like, you know, considering the possibility of aliens and their technology and whatnot. I've never had any experiences that would say to me that that's definitely happening, but it, it's certainly possible. Uh, we're, you know, it's certainly possible. We're not alone here, but I don't spend any of my time researching that. Perfect. Makes sense. What about you, CJ? Yeah, I don't, I'm, only strictly do paranormal research. I do believe that there has to be something else out there. We can't be the intelligent ones in the universe. And oh, I man, live, if we are, it's scary. Oh, we're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I live near Pinebush, New York for a short period of my life. And that's like the UFO capital of the East Coast, Northeast kind of. So I have experienced certain things there, but I don't, like Eric said, I don't put much of my time into it. I, I find it fascinating. I think some of it is like a lot of cryptids, I think, is are, are more, I think it's more of an urban legend. That's where I was going with that. But like, I've known guys that are like Bigfoot hunters. They take guys out on expeditions into the, into the woods and look for Bigfoot. That's a possibility. But yeah, I just mostly strictly paranormal. Are you guys familiar with Skinwalker Ranch at all? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some so interesting kind of things going on out there. Yeah, that's like a mixture of it. They have everything over there. Yeah, is is like that it. a paranormal hunters? Is that your your paradise? Is that the if you could go somewhere? That's I don't know that that would be my first choice. Maybe if I learned a little more about it and and understood how I would spend my time there. But there's other places that are on my list that I would like to uh, visit before that. You've got me intrigued now. What do we, what, we need at least one. Where are you headed? Uh, Wa- Waverly Hills is a great one. Okay. And, where's that? Uh, where's Waverly Hills, CJ? Tennessee, I believe. I believe it's in Tennessee. Um, I'm there. It's, so an, it's another asylum. asylum. Yeah, it's another oh, an asylum. Okay. Yeah, it's an uh, ext- reported extremely active asylum. Yeah, place is supposedly pretty, pretty nuts. The Crescent Sanatorium would be a good one, and that's in Pennsylvania. Yep. My, my my mother used to work there back in the uh, late 40, early 50s, I think it was. Yeah, so uh, she, she got to experience it when it was a functioning institution. So all these places are shut down now, though, right? Yes, uh, yes, they're shut down. Yeah. Are you allowed to go there to investigate? Yeah, most of these places charge you to go there by the hour. What type of fees do they look like? Not specifically that place, just in general. What it's, would... it's usually what, three or four hundred dollars, I think, for uh, four hours or something like that. It usually boils down to be about a hundred dollars an hour. Doesn't seem terrible. Not if you have a good group. Yeah. Waverly Hills is a sizable location, so you would want to have a number of people with you for sure. Do you find time of year or time of day? You know, so we said before that it's hard that if you get four experiences in a month, if you're the homeowner, that's kind of a lot. But then they're calling you guys in and it's hard to pinpoint like, oh, every Tuesday at three o'clock, the ghost comes and knocks on the door. But from people reporting to you, do you happen to find maybe there's a time of year or is it close to like the summer solstice, anything like that? Is- I do like to keep track of moon phases just to see if that there's any correlation there. 
I don't know that there's any specific time of day when things are more active. People say, you know, between midnight and 3 a.m. is supposed to be the most active time for spiritual activity. I don't know. Um, I do know that most paranormal investigations take place at night, but there's usually more of a logical reason for that than paranormal. Uh, Most places are closed at night. So if there's still a functioning establishment, you're there after hours. There's less outside noise and traffic and people moving about that would contaminate your data that you're collecting. So there's reasons why you work in a dark. People always like, well, why do they always take place at night? You know, don't aren't ghosts there during the day? Yes, ghosts are there during the day too. But if you believe that they are visible in different spectrums of light and you're using infrared cameras to try to capture them, working at night's a pretty good idea. Do you find that the paranormal phenomenon react better in different lights or infrared or like a purple hue or something like that, that they're going to react more in that? Or are you just cycling through your different equipment and different phenomenon is going to react differently? Right. Visually, it's said that they exist or are visible in different spectrums of light. We like to use full spectrum cameras because it records the visible light, infrared, and ultraviolet, when you talked about the purple light, that's usually because you're using a full spectrum camera. You're more likely to get visual evidence if you're recording outside of what humans can normally see. I was listening to a podcast one time. They were talking about our ability to perceive light, humans' ability to perceive light, and then saying that if there was a rail line from Los Angeles to San Francisco, you would barely be out of Los Angeles for the amount of light that we can perceive. So it it does make it very interesting if, you know, what is happening right in front of you right now that your eyes just constantly filter out that you're not even aware of. I made mention before about really studying perception, and that's a big part of what I do because our senses are so flawed. Our eyes don't really record information well. We don't really hear every frequency. So when you look at perception, it's been stated by neuroscientists that perception is largely projective before it's receptive. You're seeing things because you expect to see them there. And only after that does it start to get adjusted by incoming information. And what we pick up with our eyes and what we pick up with our ears is really inaccurate. It's a really poor representation of what's actually around us. So when I tell my wife for the 10th time, like, why well, I didn't pick up the dishes or something, this is just poor. I'm, I'm poorly built. What do you mean to do? Like, I, I just didn't see it. You could. You, see, you, yeah, okay. you, you could claim the dishes were only visible in the infrared light spectrum and you couldn't see them. I feel like my bags will be packed at the front door so fast if I start going down that route. Or she would have you committed. Yeah, involuntary psych hold. You guys can come free me. Come break me out when they shut the joint down. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll tell you to go into the light. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate it. CJ, what do you guys have on tap? What's coming up next? Uh, well, we got a couple um, uh, reinvestigations we got coming up. One is a pretty historic old mansion slash castle up in North Jersey. That that one's pretty cool. It's a pretty interesting place. The architecture is awesome. We have another one down in Tuckerton. We're going back for a so We're trying to schedule a second time to investigate there. We have, what else we got, Eric? We got coming up. We have that museum out in yep. LBI. Yep, we got a museum out and 
and possibly a um, an old establishment out there on the island as well. So it's all just a matter of scheduling them up and uh, getting out there. So for a person to reach out, what is their typical breaking point of like no longer wanting to accept it or wanting to to know more? A lot of everyone has their own threshold. They might be able to tolerate quite a bit before they say something has to be done or we need to know more about what's going on. And there's so many things that you can do to to learn to live with activity. It's never easy just to pack up and go. I mean, it's not easy just to say, okay, we're just going to sell our house. We're just going to move or we're going to do whatever. So there has to be some sort of resolution to the issue. And that comes from people's philosophies, their faith. Um, If they're involved in any kind of formalized religion that could play a part in it. And I always have pieces of advice that I'm more than willing to give to people to handle, to control, and to live with the experiences uh, so that they're not so intrusive in their lives. I think once people start getting physically harmed, scratched or pushed or objects broken or fire started, they tend to worry about that as they should. Um, I think if people start to experience illnesses that they believe are coming from the paranormal and whether they are coming from the paranormal or not, uh, the mind is a, is a strange and powerful thing. Um, they need to find a resolution to that as well. Um, and sometimes that's just talking to someone, talking to a therapist. And if that doesn't work and they truly believe it's paranormal, there's ways of handling that too. Do you find sometimes when you're talking to clients that you become the therapist to them, that they're just not even sure who to talk to? And the next thing, you know, they're laying down on the couch and you're, you're taking notes here. I'm, I'm saying that as a joke, yeah, but do you I, find them unloading on you? And you're like, uh, I'm just kind of here to study paranormal. I, I think what we do is therapy in a lot of ways. When they see people that are coming in and intentionally interacting with these things and coming away from it perfectly fine, they tend to feel a little bit better about it. And when they go to doctors and they say, well, there's nothing wrong with you. And they talk to a therapist and they say, you're fine. And they have a plumber or an electrician come in and say, no, your electricity is fine. I don't know why your lights are flickering and all of that. They don't have anyone to talk to at that point. If they're not religious people, there's not even a priest or a rabbi or whomever. That's when people do look for a little bit of advice, that they look for a little bit of understanding. And I think paranormal investigators should be sensitive to providing that. No, I think that's good. So historically, I know you, know you said you wanted to go out to the psych hospital in Pennsylvania and down to Tennessee, and the White House isn't really open for people just to walk in. And you know, but apparently Lincoln's ghost is supposed to be walking around there. You know, if you're ever given the green light, Joe Biden calls you up. Do you guys want to head there and check that out? Yeah, we'd be happy to. I think that'd be awesome. And then there's a house in Indiana, kind of near Gary, Indiana. I used to work out in the casinos in Chicago, and they're right at the state line, like. Philadelphia and Camden type of deal. And so I talked to people who lived in, in that area. And apparently there was one house that was notoriously haunted, faces in the window. It would burn down over and over. And the cops would have to try to rush in because there's faces in the window. And it was just an apparition or a ghost or something. But really crazy stuff. Is that the one that uh that Zach bought? Was that that one? I don't I'm not sure if that's the house or not, but I think he had that one torn down. Yeah. But I think that might have been that same house. I don't remember, though, off the top of my head. After hearing some of the stories from the people who live around that neighborhood, I would not want to buy it. I 
we talked about uh, Skinwalker Ranch and they talk about entities piggybacking home with them. Sometimes they're going home back to their house and the things that were happening on site are now happening at their house. I don't know. You get the, the fun ones walking on the steps. That's cool. The vacuum, the you're starting fires, you're starting. Uh, <laughs> no, no, thanks. My homeowner's insurance isn't ready for that. There's a really good book by Jason Miller called Consorting with Spirits. It's a, a book for occultists and you know witches and stuff like that. But he actually has a really sober approach to working out ways of dealing with these things so that they don't cause you problems, you know, whether that be physical or mental or otherwise. And uh, I just found that to be a really lucid book. I, I refer to it quite a bit. And I would definitely recommend that book for someone that's saying, well, what can this manifestation be? What is this? And now that it's followed me home, what do I do about it? So there's books out there. I, I particularly like that one. So we talked a little bit about occultists very briefly. Do you feel that people who practice witchcraft can conjure spirits? There's a big feeling amongst paranormal investigators that they constantly have to clean up after occultists. You watch the TV shows and everywhere, I'm not going to mention the name of the show, but every everywhere they go, satanic rituals have taken place here. Satanic rituals, they conjured demons. And I don't know if they really believe that there's all these Satanists running around everywhere doing this sort of work. To me, it just looks like metalheads went in there and spray painted a pentagram on the wall. I don't know. But as far as like people practicing witchcraft and stuff, it's a legitimate religion for a lot of people. They work closely with what they believe to be spirits of nature and elementals and things like that. They don't necessarily conjure things that other people are going to have to deal with. Many paranormal investigators believe that they make mistakes. Oh, they used the Ouija board. Now, now we're all screwed. Now we all have to go in here and figure out a way to clean up after them. I don't see it that way. I've been a practicing occultist since I was 15 years old. I'm 50 now. And I've never had anything happen that I didn't want, truly want to have happen. And it that comes down with dealing with it as a school of psychology, first and foremost. You're treating aspects of the psyche as though they're external beings. Whether or not you externalize them is entirely different. There is a theory in the paranormal, which came from the occult, of things called egregores. And if you've never heard of an egregore, it's a being that humans created. And to give you an example of this, if you look at a religion like in ancient Egypt, they had gods that were responsible for ushering the, the sun across the sky, right? And they would pray to it and they would worship it and they made statues of it. And for thousands of years, humans poured their energy and poured their belief into this thing that after a while, these things start to take on a life of their own. They start to have impact on the humans that interact with them. They start to have free free will seemingly at times and occultists know how to create these for themselves they tend to die out after a while because you don't have thousands of people praying to them for thousands of years but these are the sorts of things that have that crossover from the occult to the paranormal and when you have that crossover if you're not willing to engage in this multi 
multiple disciplinary approach, you're selling yourself and your clients short. You're not going to give them a really good oversight. It's really easy to go into a place and say, you got a demon here. Bad shit's happening. You got a demon here. That's probably not the case. You need to look at it from a more holistic point of view. What, what is that person? Why, is they, why are they perceiving it? What's happening in this home? What, are the, what is their belief structure? All of these things come from philosophy, from psychology, from religion, into the paranormal. You have to entertain all of these ideas. You have to engage in practicing all of them to an extent to truly understand what's going on. So it was a lot yeah. of rambling. I'm sorry. No, no, that was good. And I, I like, because I said before, what could we tell a beginner paranormal person? What can they go buy on eBay or, you know, and, and start looking? But if you're not, that's like saying, what do you, if you want to be a doctor, like go get a scalpel. It doesn't mean you know how to do surgery. Like you need to know this entire discipline. And so I now like you're bringing example. up. Yes. Right. So they don't just sell scalpels to kids. I tried buying them when I was a kid. Uh, <laughs> so as a paranormal investigator, what would you... I recommend for people to do. What do you see as the entire picture? The entire picture, meaning what? What do they need to know? Well, so yeah, you were talking about you know it's not just going in and saying, "Hey, you have a demon and bad shit's happening." But based on your religious beliefs, and then based on my occultist knowledge that I have here and and books that I've read, that I can combine these two things. Do you have more than those two things that you're combining? Oh yeah, I mean, like I said, it spans through. The study of perception, it's studies of consciousness. There's neurosciences that come into play. And then there's things like energy fields and the study of uh, geomagnetism. And the list can go on and on, you know, theology and philosophy and understanding the person that's having the experiences first and foremost is really important. And that's almost entirely overlooked every single time. I don't know many paranormal investigators that go in and say, let's try to understand the person having the experiences, whether we have the experiences or not. We might also have the experiences, but let's understand this person and understand why they're having these experiences or how they're creating the experiences, if that's the case, or what does the spirit or whatever's here want from this person so that we can tell them, hey, if you do this, this thing's going to leave you alone. I think that that's something that I try to instill in the people of Collectus Obscurium that is lacking in other groups. Understanding human nature, understanding the mind, the consciousness. We're not PhDs. We're not scientists. But we can go a long way if we try to educate ourselves. We can get a lot more out of the field of paranormal if we include these other disciplines. CJ might have a different opinion about what his complete view and approach is, but that's kind of like, that's kind of mine. I kind of try to include anything that might be going on there. There's theories that a lot of violent crimes take place in rooms that have some abnormality to them. And what I mean by abnormality is there's a wall that's not quite straight up and down. It tips in a little bit at the top and that has an impact on the psyche after a while. There's all kinds of things that you could entertain. You don't have to employ them all and you don't have to believe them all, but become aware of it. CJ, what do you think of exorcisms? Do you think there's demons that are possessing people that require 
either a priest or you know somebody power of Christ compels you and throwing water on them. So I'm kind of torn with that aspect because I'm not religious at all. To me, my philosophy is, you know, these people that say like there's a demon here, you know, there's good spirits, there's bad spirits. It's like there's good humans and bad humans. But I'm not completely closed-minded to it because there is a lot of history behind it. And I mean, they've been doing exorcisms for thousands of years, but I think a lot of that is tied to the beliefs of, say, the Catholic religion, because a lot of exorcisms are performed in Catholicism. And I believe a lot of that is tied to that. Yeah, I would say anything that did not take place in recent times is easy to say, and, and probably more correct, that it's a mental health issue they're diagnosing as a demon. You know, you can go drive through Kensington and, and see all those mental health issues. You can go, you know, any city themselves, but go to Kensington Beach and watch those guys stumbling around as zombies. Yep. And and now you're in the 1500s and people are eating rotten fruit, magic mushrooms, and they're bipolar. They're going to think a demon is there. But there have been some cases in, in recent times, and I think there's some uh, FOIA documents that, that came out where the FBI or the CIA was... Uh, investigating exorcisms. It's just very interesting, I think, in modern times. Anything from 1970 before, our science was basically witchcraft at some point where we're just like, uh, just shock them for a long time and see if that fixes them. Just chop off half their brain and, and see if that stops them. You would also have to ask, if there are negative entities possessing people, why? Why are they doing that? Is there? It's Well, it's a battle for good over evil. And it's like, well, I don't know that possessing this girl out and yuma somewhere and like you know that's really gonna win the war for heaven right so i kind of look at it like okay if these are external entities and not a part of the psyche if they're external entities i would more regard them as wild animals right you don't say a shark is evil because he chomps on some surfer it's a shark is doing what a shark does if there's entities are external that's kind of the way i would lean towards viewing them they're doing what they do because that's in their nature and if you tend to believe like some of the more indigenous religions like um, the native americans and such there's spirits in the land they had a relationship with these things they knew which ones to avoid they knew where to build homesteads and where not to we don't have that if these things are real and you're building your house somewhere where you shouldn't build it, you're going to be interacting with things you probably don't want to interact with. And if you're taking a hardcore religious angle to it and you're attacking these entities, you're evil, get out, you know, leave. I don't know how you would act if someone came into your home and did that, but you probably wouldn't be real nice about it. You would probably rather have some sort of conversation with someone that tells you, hey, this is now my house. I would appreciate it if you either left or behaved yourself. And I think that's a lot of what we see with these like more malevolent sort of entities, right? Like you go in there and you start cursing them and casting them out and yelling at them and provoking them. That's just going to elicit an attack. That's what would happen if you did it to a dog. If you keep yelling at a dog and poking it, it's either going to run away or it's going to bite you in the arm or something. It's its not a bad thing to look at the potential that if entities are real, 
that might be what's going on. Right. We talked about our vision and hearing perception and things like that. And also time is a construct that we have. And there are theories that all of time is happening right now in this giant soup. And we just happen to be filtering out and focusing on our current reality, but without fully understanding the whole reality of right now. And that negative entity could just be sitting down watching, you know, night court with a thing of some popcorn. And here we are sitting in his seat and, you know, feeling we get poked and we're screaming at him. And he's like, man, I'm just trying to watch some TV. I just got done work and you don't understand. Right. And you're working back to how do they perceive us? Right. That's why I try to find that out. I'm trying to get those answers. I'm working on it. How do you perceive us? Do you see us? Do you hear us? What are we to you? You do any automatic writing or I'm sorry. Go ahead, CJ. No, I said we will get that answer one day. We'll get it. Oh, I I hope so. (laughs) Do you guys participate in any automatic writing or is that not something paranormal researchers do? Some do. I don't because I don't have that ability. I'm not a sensitive. I'm not a psychic. I'm not a medium of any kind. I can't do psychometry. I can't do, I, I do a little bit of, of scrying from time to time, but that's more in, in my personal mysticism practices. Can you explain what that is real quick? Uh, yeah, scrying is like using a reflective surface to gaze into. Gypsies were said to do it with crystal balls, right? You would go to the fair and there would be this woman there and she would look into a crystal ball and tell you your future. The way that scrying works is that it's supposed to shut off certain parts of your perception and allow the brain to engage itself differently. And then you would see visuals, sort of like dreaming, but you're awake. The different reflective surfaces, they they can be anything. It could be a bowl of ink has been used. Crystals have been used. Obsidian mirrors or just black reflective mirrors can be used. Regular mirror can be used. So it's usually a reflective surface. So many questions. We talked about consciousness. So there's a push to for artificial intelligence. And there is a push for some people to try to, well, one, we don't fully understand consciousness, but Apparently, we don't even the goal, know where it comes from. Right. Apparently, the goal, though, is to upload our consciousness into these AI devices, robots, entities, whatever it might be. And then theoretically, we could live forever. I don't think that's natural. I don't think that's right. I don't think we're meant to be here forever, at least in this life, and then come back. I think there's like a greater aspect to life that we're just experiencing one little bit of it here and then it goes on somewhere more important or more main and this just happens to be at the location spot do you have any thoughts do you think that's possible of do you have any concerns of uploading consciousness to a robot or giving a robot accepting consciousness i really i don't know much about the field i don't see how we could transfer consciousness into any physical structure because like i said we just don't know enough about it. I mean, how how would they even do that? I would need I would need some real education on this subject to be able to uh, comment it with any kind of intelligence. I don't know. I I don't know that it would be right or wrong, and I don't know what the nature of that consciousness would be without that human interface. Like I don't know that the consciousness in a computer would even necessarily function the same. Going back to what we talked about earlier when I said the consciousness continues without us and we might not perceive time the same way, we might not perceive anything the same way. We might not even, you know, well, why doesn't my husband come back and speak to me? He said he would. 
he might not even be consciously aware that he was a human being at one time. We don't know how postmortem consciousness can possibly even work. We don't know any of that. And I think that's the same thing. I think without that human interface, without that reference point of the self, like the body, you know, like, well, where's Brian? Brian's sitting there talking into a microphone, right? That's that's the reference point of your consciousness, even though your consciousness might, might not be localized in your body. That without that reference point, without that interface, I don't know that the consciousness can stay cohesive in the sense that it's going to retain all your memories because that might also rely somewhat on the biology of the brain. It might be a consciousness interacting with the physical brain. If you take that out of the picture, maybe you don't have memories. I don't know. I mean, these are all just like purely speculative comments, but it's a lot to try to take in. And I don't know that it'll ever really work. This might be better for the occultist conversation, but we're going to touch on it here. So John D, are you familiar with him? Yeah, John D and Edward Kelly. They were the uh, creators of the Anakian magic system. Okay. So they're one of the Silicon Valley companies invented one of their mainframes, I think it's called the D-Wave. And their CEO was doing a speech and talked about bringing back the old ones. Have you, have you ever heard this? I, I haven't heard what you're talking about, no, but I'm familiar with the old ones and D and Kelly and all of them. Also, they yeah. did a lot of their work through scrying, oddly enough. So I think they had the, the black obsidian uh, they marble, had the, they had the, the, right? Yep. So, mm-hmm. And they sat it and, on a wax seal with engravings all around it. Yeah. So this D-Wave server is the black reflective. And so D-Wave, John D. And then the the CEO, as he was giving his presentation, was like, oh, this, this is going to bring back the old ones. For our next conversation, I'll have more detail for that. But very interesting things of people who are in control of our technology and collecting all of our data and, and what they believe and think they can do. And they're more open to sharing it. You know, if you knew who Dean Ke- Kelly were in the 80s, you probably wouldn't name any product after it because you'd be deemed, you know, a Satanist, right? I mean, it was the satanic panic in the 80s. People believe that the logo from Procter & Gamble was a, a satanic symbol. And no, oh, Procter & Gamble supports the Church of Satan. It was a big rumor back then. So, I mean, different times now. People can draw on these obscure names and references for their products. It, every once in a while on Facebook or Twitter, you'll you'll come across, uh, they'll have the logos of the companies and then some of the, you know, either Egyptian symbols of, of what they are. And they combine like the Bluetooth symbol. If you haven't seen the, the picture, then I'm giving a terrible example. Like Gmail is, is an, an ancient symbol that they like put together the how the G and the M is on, on the envelope and sure. the Bluetooth. Just fascinating things. Yeah, Bluetooth uh, is uh, runes, Nordic runes. Yeah, just I just find that amazing. Like how I saw a headline the other day. Taylor Swift did something. She was playing in the rain, and then her piano player, her, her last name was D Piano. So how does a piano player go up to be play the piano? Right, very very strange. <laughs> and how does somebody who gets to be so smart to make Bluetooth or whatever it is then go back and pick these runes that have, you know, depending on which way I guess you look at anything, you can put a, a certain definition to it. But then you're looking at it, and then is it conjuring a message or whatever it might be? And now you're putting it on everybody's phones or whatever. You know, just I just find it fascinating. You know, you could have made just drew a speaker and, and have it going out. But like, no, we'll take these things and put it together, and it's two runes, and it looks like that. I'm not really sure I'm going with that, but it's just fascinating of people who end up in charge and in marketing. Right? Who's in charge of the marketing? How is that getting? How's that getting there? 
I have no idea, but I, I do. Yeah. I do know, like you know, like when it comes to like Bluetooth, the story was like Bluetooth was like this Viking king, and he was like really promoting communication between the different Viking clans, and it was called Bluetooth because he ate blueberries. And then I, I, then I heard that story wasn't even true, so I don't, I don't really know. I, I don't know if it's true or not. Maybe, maybe one of your. I saw it on the internet, so it has to be true. Like that's how I absolutely know it yeah it was on yeah. Facebook so you can't go wrong <laughs> right so I, all of them aren't true but some of them when you do see them it's just amazing that somebody would come up with us and then to know that story and then put it together I, I just find that you know but you also said that some of your occultist practice that you've you've achieved or you've things that you've wanted and so it's amazing that maybe these people had an interest in IT computers whatever it might be and then they were trying to achieve what they wanted and while also reading these books and then boom there you go. You know, you create the life that you want. Uh, do you know um, Jack Whiteside's Parsons story? Do you know him? Uh, Jack Parsons was running around with Alistair Crowley, or am I wrong? This he, he was he was a practicer within the uh, within Alistair Crowley's esoteric order, but he was largely responsible for uh, rocket propulsion projects during I think it was the fifties, I believe, or forties. And uh, yeah, he was um, he was instrumental. Uh, there was a company they formed called JPL, Jet Propulsions Laboratory. And he mixed his science with occultism all the time. So much so that the FBI came became really skeptical of what he was truly trying to do when he was working on the rocket program for America, because he was funded by the government to do a lot of it. And they, they had there was some wild stories involved with those guys. Crowley was said to be in communication with an entity called LAM. And if you look at his drawings of Lom back then, it looks exactly like people describe gray aliens today. It's it's really wild. That's fascinating. So, you know, is that so if you ever hear any DMT stories, maybe you did it, I don't know, but you listen to Rogan enough, you'll hear enough people telling stories. And there's all the machine elves, and then all these people describe the same things where they do ayahuasca ceremonies and there's black panthers and there's things like that. And people tend to see similar things doing this. So whatever Crowley was doing to draw this being, maybe he was really talking to an alien and, and drew him. And then versus what people are seeing Gray's currently, you know, is it some of the same stuff, or is it all just he happened to be talking to the head of the Grays? I don't know. Yeah. We talk about a crazy reality. Vonner von Braun. He wrote a science fiction book. You know, he was uh, high up in the Nazis. He came over here, Project Paperclip, yep. and he started with with NASA and and rocket propulsion. So he wrote a science fiction book about uh, the first colony on Mars, and the leader of that colony, he was the Elon of Mars, E-L-O-N. So who's the first person who's going to probably end up on Mars yeah, is Elon, Elon Musk, Musk, or yeah. Elon Musk's ship is. Right. So how crazy, you know, we're some of the synchronicities of life or, you know, where are we even, you know, what is this reality at all? And then as we're having somebody in the 50s, make up a name, and then this guy's born 20 years later with that name, it happens to be going. Just crazy. So we talked about this reality and what we have, and no one's fully sure what happens in the afterlife. No one's fully sure like what's happening right now. Do you reality have any is thought? Subjective. <laughs> reality is subjective. There are some people that think this is base reality. Some people talk about, and if you could ever program a computer, like The Sims, the video game The Sims, you build a whole city and they go through and they live whole lives. And as our technology gets better, we're going to be able to run whole simulations. And that simulation will, will not even realize that it is a simulation. And they talk about base reality and things like that. 
Do you have any thoughts on if this is base reality? If it's not, is it other simulations bleeding in? Could be some of the paranormal, multiverse type things bleeding in. These are all the great unknown questions, but it's also just fun to think about. Yeah, and we'll we'll venture way outside of my wheelhouse when it comes to some of that stuff. I wouldn't be able to really comment on a lot of that. I do know that, you know, there's that theory that our reality is a holographic projection of some sort, right? Yeah. And then there's biocentrism where we create reality virtually by just experiencing it. And there's plenty of books out there. I I started to read books on biocentrism and I was just like, it wasn't for me. I just, I just put them down. I get lost on the 3D reality that we're 2D experiencing 3D reality. It's like 2D is a, I guess, a drawing that you can make 3D. And that, I, I don't know, that starts blowing my mind. When I see that chalk, the, the sidewalk chalk, and people make like steps going down, and I would I would trip over it if I saw that. And I'm like, I, I can't even comprehend that. So how can I comprehend that I'm a 2D person in the 3D world? And that And that is an example of why our senses suck. Because you know that's drawn on the sidewalk, but yet your brain's telling you, there's stairs there. I can see them. They're three-dimensional. Well, that's our perception until until we adjust and say we get closer and we're like, oh, wait, that's a chalk drawing. That's not actually a crack with a hole in it. So someone did that with chalk or whatever. That's just an example of like how poor our perception and, and how badly we construct reality in our awareness, right? And and it happens on a daily basis. It happens all the time. Like you could be driving down a dark rural road and see a raccoon on the side of the road and be cautious because you don't want to run it over if it runs out in front of you. And then as you pass by, it's like, oh, it's a trash bag. It's a trash bag. Well, okay, we were far away. We didn't see it. But no, in your brain, it was so much a raccoon that it affected your performance. It made you slow down so you didn't run over it. You didn't see any legs. You didn't see any eyes reflecting. Yet your brain was so convinced that it was a raccoon that you changed your behavior. And that's the interesting thing about perception. It's just like it it can really describe a reality to you that other people don't share. And that's what we call insanity, right? Like we have consensual reality. There's a reality that most people agree on. Uh, Well, the sky is blue or like, you know, I can knock on a wooden desk. Like that's the reality we agree on. But when you don't agree on that reality, you're deemed insane. It's just a matter of perception. Colorblind people don't see a blue sky. Uh, I would like to jump in that you guys are both in New Jersey and we have not had a blue sky in days. It is bright, fiery red and like the depths of hell are knocking on our door. Thanks, Canada. I did see a little blue today. I was like, oh yeah, the sky is blue. I forgot about that. Yeah, the sun came out for like five minutes. We just need to rain. We haven't, it hasn't rained in months and we just needs to rain, clean all this stuff up. You said something about, I was so excited to jump in with my blue sky joke that I just lost it. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't sorry. anything worthwhile. Don't worry. <laughs> I, I had nothing good to talk about. I'll sit that here and talk good. nonsense all night. You got to stop me at some point. <laughs> so you talked about the perception and then seeing a trash can, uh, a trash bag on the side of the road and it's a raccoon. And it's amazing that they'll, they will do these exercises where like, the police will stage a crime or whatever it is and people to witness it just to as a psychology test and everybody fails it yet somebody could say hey i saw eric do this and then convict you of a crime as they just showed that there's a 20 percent accuracy in what they saw eyewitness accounts are horrible that's well known like witnesses forget things they your brain fills in information that 
you don't remember. It'll fill it in. What color shirt was he wearing? If your brain doesn't know it, it'll, you, some people say, well, I don't remember. But if you say, oh, it was definitely red, that might not be true at all. But you might be convinced that it was a red shirt. Your brain will fill in these little details that you forget. It's very strange. And I think police work in general really suffers because of bad eyewitness accounts and, you know, lack of detail in that regard. If it wasn't for cameras being everywhere, I couldn't imagine really much stuff being solved at all. Everybody just blends together. It, it makes it very difficult. Especially now, everyone's got their face in their phone, so they're not really keen on what's going on around them as much. Yeah, I was talking to Michael Bryan. I mentioned he d- did UFO books, and he was talking about a, a sighting. I think it was like in New York City. And I was like, how do people have time to look up off their phones? Like, There could be a UFO land, and people are just too busy scrolling and tweeting and everything else and, and have no time at all. Take a quick like picture with it, get a selfie, and move on. It, it would just be... I- so crazy. I actually, I build trucks for a living. So I had, a, I built some trucks for New York Transit or one of the New York departments. And we had to actually put skirts on these trucks because they have such a problem with people buried in their phones, just walking out in the streets and ending up underneath these big trucks. So we actually have to build, we actually had to build these big skirts so that people couldn't end up under the trucks. You are ruining Darwinism. These people are sorting themselves <laughs> I- out. I know. I couldn't believe we had to do that. Yeah, I I don't doubt it. It is really, it is crazy out there. So you did mention you guys do not investigate UFOs. That's not in your wheelhouse at all. When you are talking to any of these people who have these paranormal phenomena, are they mentioning that they're seeing anything else? Are they, do they seem like they're attracted to, to the weird or it just happens to be what they're reporting on? Are you getting like a side story from them ever? I've never had anyone tell me that they also see aliens or UFOs or anything like that. I don't know if CJ has. I I did have a client one time tell me she heard rhinoceroses running down her stairs. So rhinoceroses, rhinoceroses, her words. It turned out during during the client review that or the client interview that she was heavily medicated. So, but that was the only experience I had other than people having. A ghost phenomenon or paranormal phenomenon. An interesting side note to that is when we find out about medications or recreational drug use, and we try to ask that in a really understanding way during an interview, during a pre-investigation interview. And I try to explain to these people, if you are, tell me you are, if you, you know, don't try not to hold that back. It doesn't mean that your experiences aren't genuine. It might actually open you up to these experiences or it might, you know, whatever you're doing might attract these experiences. Just because someone has substance problems doesn't mean that what they're experiencing otherwise is not real. And and it might be, it, it might just totally be like, oh, I took a lot of acid and now I see shit. Like that might be, that might be the reason why, but maybe you took acid and you see stuff that's really there. <laughs> like, we don't know. I always have a hard time asking clients those sorts of questions during the interview because I don't want them to think like, well, if I tell them that I'm on antidepressants, maybe he'll just think that it's all in my mind. Maybe if I'm struggling with some sort of emotional problems or whatever, it's going to discredit my account. And I always try to stress that that's not the case. Just because you have these issues or you, you're struggling with something, 
it doesn't make your experiences wrong or or incorrect that's the tough part with with being a researcher and an investigator is that you have to be empathetic to your clients and that it, it gets tough because that's a lot of times like you said like you're like almost like their therapist and i gotta be open-minded to a lot of that when you go into it yeah to shame their feeling judge that they don't want to be fully honest but all that it's doing is just providing a full picture for you and as we've already covered multiple times our perception is absolute shit so somebody who's on antidepressant or drinking alcohol smoking weed or you know had a lot of lsd currently or back in the day whatever it might be that could affect your perception. And now you're just seeing things that regular people don't see that are real, but that are freaking you out. It really is just, you guys are looking for an answer. And part of that answer could be like, maybe you should have done 7,000 hits of acid and you wouldn't be seeing a ghost. But we do think there's a ghost there because we're recording some stuff. Well, people are sensitive to when you ask things like that, but that's like a social stigma, right? Like I don't get shamed because I take insulin because I'm a diabetic. You shouldn't be shamed because you take, you know, Zoloft because you struggle with depression. These are all illnesses. They're all treatable. You should get treated if you have them, but it shouldn't dissuade you from sharing your experiences and being open about that. It's a part of, it's a part of our case study. If we start to see certain medications start to tie in with certain types of experiences, then we can get down that path quicker. We can start to resolve things faster. But if people aren't willing to share that information, we're working blind. No, that definitely does make it tough though. But fellas, I appreciate your time. You're welcome back anytime. I'd also like Eric for you to come back and we can get into some mysticism and things like that. I promise uh, there'll be just as bad jokes then as they are now, but we'll see what can happen. To be serious though, I truly appreciate you guys for your time people who are experiencing something and they would like to get in contact with you, what is the best way to get in contact? You can reach out to us on Facebook Messenger. We have a Facebook profile on there. We also have a Gmail account. You can contact us at collectusobscurium at gmail.com. You guys have Instagram or Twitter or just those two? You're we with? have uh, Instagram. Yeah, same. Again, I really appreciate your time. CJ, you have anything you want to plug or all on the same page? Nope, all on the same page. You know, that's uh, just what we do. You guys are welcome back anytime. I want answers, man. I want, when the ghost gives you an essay back, I need to know, are we a ghost <laughs> to them? Like, are we haunting them? I feel like there was a movie about that, people ghost hunting and they were the ghost. But Yeah, there's something uh, like that, I remember, yeah. Yeah. And hey, my podcast go, you know, for an hour, two hours sometimes, and it's tough to edit and it takes a lot of time. I can only imagine doing video, but... I think that is a good outlet that you guys should try to explore in the future as you get more things uh, or a, you know, a, a book of some sort to put together your greatest hits and get people out there. I think it's a great avenue you guys can explore as well. I'm an idea man here. I'm sorry. But thank you so We're much for coming on. on. Journal, yeah. I think that'd be great. Yeah. yeah. All right. So reach out to Eric and CJ if you have any questions on the paranormal, if you think your place might be experiencing something or that you are, they can come check it out. Thank you very much, guys, and have a great night. Thank you. All right, everyone, that was our show. Don't forget to leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcast. Like and follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date in all things wild and weird. Check out the links in the show notes for more information on our guests. The biggest support you can offer is to tell everyone about the podcast. Until next time.